0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy, the region's leading graduate policy school. We've got an amazing range of degrees on offer here at Crawford, some incredibly exciting courses within those degrees, and it's the only place in Australia where you can complete a public policy master's in just one year. This is a really exciting new program that we're offering, the Executive Master of Public Policy. You can find out more about it at Crawford.anu.edu. Dot .au. And I raised the EMPP because my co-host for the pod today is Dr. Sarah Bice. And Sarah is one of the people who's deeply involved in the new degree program. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sharon. And Sarah is one of the people who's directly involved in the Executive Masters program. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about our new program. The new program is fabulous and we
2: have amazing students This degree is special because it's geared towards individuals with public service or policy-related experience of five to seven years. So we're getting at the more senior, experienced individuals who want to come back and really update and upgrade their skills and be at the forefront of knowledge. The classes are a bit smaller, they're really seminar-focused, and there's heaps to discuss,
1: like what we're going to talk about today. It really is a fantastic program, like all of our degree programs, so check it out. But today, Sarah, as you suggested, we're talking about something that is directly relevant to universities, something that universities around the world have been incredibly focused on over the past couple of years.
2: They are so focused, Sharon. You might even call it obsessed. It is really like my own inability to stop clicking on Ryan Gosling Hey Girl memes it's incredible. And the issue is research
1: impact. That's right, Sarah. It certainly is turning into an obsession of that magnitude when it comes to impact in universities. And this really matters. You know, we spend a lot of time in, in universities talking about the quality of our research, but what happens with that quality research also matters. How we impact on the world around us. And for us here at Crawford, how we're able to inform policy, to inform the thinking that sits behind policy, um, to inform how we think about outcomes. So, you know, it is an obsession, but it's an obsession that matters.
2: I totally agree, but I think the irony of this conversation is that often research impact is discussed within universities when it's about our capacity to provide advice and scholarship and knowledge to policymakers, to the publics, to civil society, and even to the private sector. So one of the things that interests me about research impact is how do we get this discussion out there with those who need it most? At the moment, for example, one of my own research projects, the Next Generation Engagement Project, is working directly with industry to understand what their research needs are so that we're tailoring research from the university from the very beginning to meet the questions that industry and government need answered.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Sarah. There are so many different ways of thinking about impact and it does change the way in which we do our research and the way we engage and the importance of engaging with perhaps a far broader range of stakeholders than we normally would. And it opens up some really exciting opportunities.
2: Absolutely, and that's why I'm so thrilled about today's podcast because we have with us an international expert on research impact, somebody who's really pushing the boundaries, Professor Mark Reed. Mark's based at Newcastle University in the UK, and he's an expert in the subject of making research count. He has over 150 publications to his name. This guy is a rock star. He includes handbooks on research impact, and he's also written a book, The Productive Researcher. He has been cited more than 12,000 times and puts most of us to shame. Mark is also the host of a brilliant podcast, Fast Track Impact. It's essential listening for those researchers wondering how to influence their own work
1: into the real world. So we'll leave a link to find out more in the show notes. Yeah, I listened to to Mark's bio and I have to think, you know, what an underachiever, really. I know, he really, like, what a time waster. He just needs to up his game. (laughs) That's exactly right. But in terms of impact, you know, this is someone who's really doing it, but then prepared to show others how to do it, to to share his ideas with others. And so I'm really excited to hear what Mark has to say and to see if, if I can... Yeah, learn a little bit more about how we can really have impact. And I'm sure a lot of our colleagues will be listening with great interest to what Mark has to say. But before we, we talk to Mark, a reminder that we're really keen to get your thoughts on this and any of our pods. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just drop us a line by email if that's the way you like to do business, podcast at net. And
2: I'm looking forward to hearing from our guest today, Professor Mark
1: Reed. Mark, welcome. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. So Mark, can you begin just by telling us a little bit about your own journey? What was it that first got you interested in the idea of research impact specifically and, and where has that led you?
0: Yeah, so I've always done research to to try and make a difference. I'm a, a bit of an idealist at heart. I believe that through the research, I can do the research that we do as a community that we can make the world a better place. Uh, But in my own practice, uh, it was very apparent to me that uh, some of my ideas worked and made a difference, and some of them really didn't make a difference at all, or even worse, uh, things went quite badly wrong. Uh, And so for my own practice, increasingly I was becoming more reflective and asking the question, well, what works, and why do some things not work? Uh, and increasingly, as I got bigger projects, uh, I was able to reflect more broadly. Uh, and I started then looking across different disciplines, and different geographical, cultural contexts to, to really try and answer that question. What is it that seems to work? And why is it that sometimes apparently very good ideas seem to go nowhere? They, they never get taken up. Um, and by generalizing, by theorizing, uh, then my goal was to try and provide practical guidance for others so that they could do things that would work effectively, but also efficiently. Uh, And so uh, I developed, um, I wrote a book, The the Research Impact Handbook, uh, and uh, I decided to try and practice what I preach and take that out onto the road through a training course. Uh, And the idea of that is that uh, here is a set of evidence-based principles from the research that I and a lot of other people have done that can enable you to do this stuff effectively. But while I was trialing this, uh, it became very apparent to me that actually the the main reason that most people, most researchers don't engage with this thing is it just takes a lot of time Uh, and most of us don't have enough time to do this whole thing justice. So uh, increasingly my focus has been on not only what works, but what works efficiently. Uh, So there isn't that excuse that we can do this with what limited time we have as researchers.
1: So, Mark, you've said a few times what works. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, when I hear you say that, I have in my mind a sense of what what, what you mean by what works. But what do you mean when you say what works around research impact? What what are you Mm -hmm. thinking of there?
0: Well, uh, this is, for me, one of the most challenging aspects of research impact, is that it means very different things to very different people. So, uh, I would define uh, the impact of my research in, in two ways. In uh, as simple way as possible, I would simply define it as benefit. Uh, and the question that I would ask is, well, who benefits? And when you ask it in that way, then it becomes quite apparent that, well, okay, this group may benefit, but at the expense of another group, perhaps. Um, uh, And that really forces me to ask whether there may be unintended negative consequences from my work uh, and to to really uh, think as broadly as possible about the range of different beneficiaries. Uh, the, The definition that I've given in the second edition of the Research Impact Handbook is simply the good that researchers can do in the world, and I've used that word good uh, because I believe that there is this really strong value judgment, and what I believe is good, you may believe is bad, um, and of course, then, when we enter into the the political realm, uh, then that then becomes much more thorny, much more challenging, and we need to be very aware of how what we think is a good thing may actually come across to to other people, and I think that awareness means that we 're much more likely than to be able to ameliorate some of the negative consequences. Uh, at least reduce um, uh, the, the negative impacts and, and focus more on things that will be a good to as many people as possible.
2: Mark, you mentioned there that different uh, receivers of research, I think is is a good word. And we have a very wide listener base here on this podcast. And I think some of them will be asking themselves, as people who are not researchers, why is this even a conversation? Isn't it the case that researchers should innately be focused on generating impact. And you yourself talked about having to create a training course to tell researchers how to do this. So can you talk to us a bit about why we're not seeing this as an innate part of research and how we might shift that?
0: Mm, yeah, so for some disciplines this is, and uh, for many applied disciplines, this is just integrated into everything that you do. But if you look more broadly across the academy, uh, actually people like me who are fundamentally motivated by the, the good that I can do for my research are in the minority. So every training course that that I run, and I've I've trained over 4,000 researchers over the last three years, I start with one question. Why do you do what you do? Really, why do you do what you do? Uh, And yes, some people will say, yeah, I want to change the world. I, I want to make something better. Uh, but actually, the most common answer I get to that question from researchers is simply, I'm curious. Uh, I never quite grown up and stopped asking those why questions. Uh, and actually, that, that creative freedom to ask new questions, to discover new things. Uh, and I think for, for me, there's a, a real challenge here. Because um, 10 years ago, the, there was a very strong hierarchy in the academy that the pure scientists were at the, the, at the top of that tree. And they kind of look down their noses a bit at the applied researchers who weren't really proper scientists. Uh, and then the applied researchers look down their noses on people like me who talk to policymakers. Uh, and really, you shouldn't talk to people like that. I mean, yeah. Uh, so people like me, scum of the earth. Uh, and actually, what we've noticed is uh, over the last five years um, uh, in particular, there's been a real role reversal Uh, and actually now increasingly uh, in Australia, in the UK in particular but in other countries as well, there is this sense now that the pure scientists and uh, non-applied arts and humanities scholars feel under siege that actually now uh, I hear people when they say why they do what they do apologising to me and saying, I know this sounds a bit self-indulgent but I am curiosity driven. Uh, And and actually they feel under siege by this idea that there are people like me now who are in the ascendancy and we're now looking down our noses at them because somehow our motives are purer than theirs. And for me, what I try to do with the trainings that I do and the the stuff that I write is to try and just level that playing field and say, look, you do what you do for your own reasons, understand fundamentally why you do what you do and then engage with impact, try and make a difference uh, if and only if you want to for your reasons. And what I find is that many of those curiosity-driven researchers uh, actually, when they engage with the broader world, discover that real-world problems don't respect disciplinary boundaries. They have to then work beyond their own comfort zones. They get asked crazy questions by people in the real world that actually, you know what, I'm fascinated to know what the answer to that is. And this whole thing of engaging uh, actually inspires more curiosity, more creative approaches, and actually can intrinsically motivate them.
2: You just, for me, raise an important question there and that's around this notion of transdisciplinary research, so research that is externally demand-driven but that brings together researchers from the earliest stages from very diverse disciplines. Can you talk a bit about the role of that transdisciplinarity in affecting the types of research impact that you think are best and that you really want to see?
0: Yeah, so these kinds of terms, these kinds of approaches have become a bit of a buzzword. And universities around the world now are trying to reorganize themselves around grand challenges, global challenges, these thematic areas which are innately interdisciplinary. And I think that is a right step because, of course, the the problems that we experience in the world that the policy community are trying to tackle very rarely respect disciplinary boundaries. Uh, But I think that uh, the negative unintended consequence of that is very often that people are kind of shoehorned into teams chasing the money for these big projects uh, with uh, no tension really to the deeper dynamics. So yes, my discipline might fit perfectly with your discipline in the context of this particular challenge. But actually on a personality level, on the level of our values, maybe actually we're pulling in very different directions. And so you end up with this kind of matchmaking process of inter and transdisciplinary teams who are actually quite dysfunctional. And I think it's important that we just look a little bit more critically at this. Yes, let's take that kind of approach to science, uh, but let's actually think a bit more deeply about the personalities, the values, uh, and actually find people who uh, understand the world in compatible ways. We don't have to be all the same, but we need to have compatible ways of understanding how the world works, what knowledge is, what constitutes valid knowledge, if we're gonna actually pull together as a team.
1: So Mark, I think I mean I think that's such an interesting issue of how you put teams together in order to, to make them work best. And I'd love to hear a bit more of your thinking around how you make that happen, how you begin to put those teams together, um, and perhaps even how you then dismantle teams when it's not working and re-establish them. But also How we think about engaging through the research process, not just with other researchers, but perhaps with practitioners or policymakers, perhaps with civil society organisations or other agencies. Do you see a space for non-researchers in the research process as as you put those teams together?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the the researchers on on my team to to start with – uh, then uh, I like to to start with a, a core team, um, and for me, trust is what it's all about. Um, and so these are people I've worked with before, that, uh, and I will do smaller collaborations. We'll maybe write a paper together, or we'll run a workshop together. Something that that gives me a sense of actually who this person is, what their values are, whether we can work together, and what, on the basis of that trust, I have now a core team. And on my projects, and I'll bring people into the periphery of those teams in roles that, well, if it doesn't work, it's not a disaster. Uh, and through that, I then get to build trust with them, and then they can come into the core team of the next project. Uh, and so this is its based on, on trust. It's based on friendship. Um, and those are teams that work, that motivate, that people want to be part of. At the same time, there are these disciplinary understandings and ways of knowing that you need to work at, and that doesn't just come through just chatting. Uh, And so for me, you actually need to invest in building interdisciplinary capacity within your research team, which is about giving that training. And so often what I will do is uh, to run sessions or have parts of meetings where I give it over to a work package leader, a disciplinary expert within our team, uh, and Their job is to explain in plain English uh, what it is that they do and to give everyone on the team something that they might be able to use in their own work from their home discipline. Uh, So they've got something practical and tangible from it. And in so doing, we start to actually build a joint, shared vocabulary uh, and a way of, of working that is respectful and can fully exploit the potential of interdisciplinary learning. Now, transdisciplinarity is, for me, just simply interdisciplinary projects that uh, engage with stakeholders and publics, uh, and when they work best, we engage as equals. So for me, this is about having those kinds of people on my teams uh, as part of my project management group. So I've got a project at the moment, a £1.5 million project, uh, and uh, we have uh, two uh, of our core group uh, who are managing the project, uh, who are from the third sector and from business. Uh, And they are equals with us uh, in this team, and they are funded as equals with us uh, on, on that team. Uh, and I think that to, that is a fundamentally respectful approach. Uh, but when you do that, actually, uh, you begin to learn uh, much more deeply and you can do much more exciting research. Uh, and the danger is that if you don't integrate uh, people, those those other voices, into your team as equals, then they can have become an afterthought. Now, how to go about doing that, especially if you're someone who, who doesn't engage that broadly. um, You have to systematically think about who might have an interest in the things that you're interested in. And the danger is that you just go with your address book and the usual suspects and uh, the biases that you're not even aware of in your own social networks. Uh, And so for me, I use a tool um, known as stakeholder analysis. This is something I've written about quite extensively, kind of reframed um, as publics or stakeholder analysis. Uh, which tries to understand now who are the various different organizations, representative groups, individuals perhaps, uh, who might have interests that intersect with your interests as a researcher or whatever it is that you're doing. And you're systematically looking through them uh, and you're asking yourself uh, what kind of benefit might they get from engaging with, with this work. Um, and what level of influence might they have uh, as well. Uh, and now I can start to prioritize. Uh, now you may come up with a list of maybe hundreds of different organizations, you spend long enough doing this. Uh, and uh, and of course I said at the beginning, this is about doing this in a time efficient way. Uh, and so rather than getting terrified by the full range of people, oh my goodness, I really should be engaging with that person and that organization. Now I have a prioritized list. And this is the top three organizations that really in terms of benefit and influence, I really need to make sure I. Re- out to uh, I'm going to set myself a target now uh, one per month 15 minutes per one month uh, three ma- emails uh, later three months later I am significantly closer to impact I have significantly more potential for impact uh, and s- let's see where those conversations go uh, and if I run out of time at that point, I'm not beating myself up. I'm accepting, hey, I'm busy. But at least I reached out to those three and I've got a rationale and justification for why I drew the line where I did.
2: Mark, I think I can hear you here moving into one of your more recent books, The Productive Researcher, and I hear you talking a lot about efficiency. I'd really like to open up that tension because there is a huge tension between this push for research efficiency and wins and gains and impact But at the same time, we have studies out of the UK, for example, that suggests that at least in the health field, you're looking at a 17-year lag time between research outputs and health on-ground impact. So how how do we balance that tension between efficiency and productivity in the way that you define it and achieving impact?
0: Yeah, really good question. Um I think it does vary from discipline to discipline but I think that kind of statistic makes it very clear to people that actually if you really want to make a difference, you have to be in this for the long game. Uh, And for me, a a core principle behind this is that this is fundamentally about relationships. And these are relationships that have to be based on trust. They have to be two way. So there's humility built into this and they have to be long term relationships. And if this is that you're in this for a quick win to get some kind of case study or something you can report to a funder uh, and you need it this year, then the chances are, it's not going to happen and actually I would interrogate my motives and ask myself well why is it that I'm doing this actually is this really for their benefit or is this for pleasing my funders getting more funding promotion or, or something like that. Mm.
2: In Australia and I, I'd be really interested in your opinion on this we find ourselves in a situation particularly amongst early career researchers and some of our bright sparks and most promising people are facing a very highly casualized and contractualized workforce. It's no longer the case that you enter university and climb the tenure ladder. How do we also balance this shifting contractualization of the Australian academic workforce with the expectations that we will deliver impact, knowing what you've just said, that it takes a long time and you have to be in it for the long term and build relationships? Yeah, so...
0: This stuff is really, I think, quite deeply problematic. And and it goes to to a much deeper structural level in terms of how we organize things. Um, And I think that some of the neoliberal agendas um, that are are driving the marketization and managerialism within the academy uh, are actually operating against uh, and and preventing us from uh, developing the kind of long term relationships that that we need. Uh, And I think that these short-term contracts are are a massive risk to to impact. Uh, uh, So I build all these relationships, I invest all this time, and now I'm moving to a different country, a different discipline, uh, out of academia. Uh, And where does that all go? And people end up feeling kind of left high and dry. Uh, And so we do need to be very aware of that. Uh, And so if you are in that situation, then you need to think about the long-term and who are the relationships uh, with other people that you can build in. So there's a bit of resilience there so that there are other people to pick up that relationship if you do leave. Um, I think on a structural level, we need to to, to think as as a university sector about how we incentivize, but also how we facilitate and organize things uh, for impact. Um, And the danger is that if we don't think about that, then this becomes something that can only be done by more senior, established, permanent members of staff. And to be honest, in the current system, when early career academics come to me, despite the fact that uh, my passion is impact, uh, I will tell them, if you want a permanent job, then actually you have to prioritize your papers. Uh, And there is no other answer to this because that is how the system is set up at present. Uh, And so for me, it's about understanding how can I work out what what are my values, how do they intersect with my identity, Uh, and then how can I fit into a system like that before it changes and produce my papers in an efficient way uh, and do enough of the stuff that motivates me, in my case, impact, uh, without detracting from the fact that I need to produce enough to tick the boxes to then get that permanent position or whatever it is that that, that I have to to fulfil for for my employer. Uh, And for me, this is the heart of the productive researcher, that what we're looking for here is not goals, uh, and certainly not short-term goals. We're looking for priorities. And for me, the word priority has infused within it this sense of values. Uh, What your priorities are, are the things that you care deeply about. Uh, And if we can understand what our priorities are fundamentally, and even just spend 10 minutes a day, uh, worst case scenario, 10 minutes per week on those high priority things, then that sense of demotivation that you have, that it's all about metrics, it's all about the grant income, it's all about publish or perish, you know what, you can survive that system because.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken
0: today. You know what? There's that sense that I'm, I'm moving forward. I've made progress today on the stuff that really matters to me. And that 10 minutes today is so motivational that tomorrow I make it 15 minutes. Uh, and next week, maybe I manage to find a whole hour to do this stuff. Uh, and I find ways of now much more easily saying no to those extracurricular, additional things that might massage my ego that are quite easy to say yes to, to please a bunch of people, but that I can see now will actually take up that hour that I might have used for that really motivational thing that I actually really care about.
1: Mark, I think sort of related to this issue of, of early career researchers and the pressure that's on them to be perhaps all things to all people to demonstrate their worth, you know, fantastic in terms of hitting the high quality journals, but also being able to achieve impact and often having teaching thrown into that. Um, I'm conscious of of the way researchers are increasingly measured and assessed. And so I have to ask you about metrics. You mentioned them in passing. But what do you think of the metrics that we use, particularly the metrics that are emerging about uh, measuring impact, Um, especially when we think about that long long lead time we often have into impact actually happening. What do you think about the metrics that are emerging and that increasingly, not just early career researchers, but everyone's being assessed by?
0: So I think the problem with with metrics is um, that we go for them because they're efficient, they're easy, they're quick. Um, And of course, you don't want to spend an absolute fortune and years and years of staff time just trying to assess whether we did impact when actually you're trying to actually invest that time and money in achieving good for the world. Um, and so I understand that attention and I understand why it is therefore that we opt for these, these kinds of metrics. Um, uh, but I think some of these metrics um, can potentially be quite damaging. So uh, for example, um, in the engagement and impact framework um, in, in Australia, one of the metrics that uh, has been proposed Uh, is uh, around income from non-academic sources which instantly creates uh, an unlevel playing field some disciplines can do that easily others can't Uh, and potentially depending on who is giving you that funding and what strings are attached uh, it adds in the dimension of potentials for potential for conflicts of interest Um, uh, and so uh, whatever metric you choose there will always be some kind of flaw in it or limitation or some kind of uh, unintended behaviour that it creates or game playing that it it creates. Um, uh, And of course, the solution to that is, well, we abandon the metrics and we move to a much more sophisticated, qualitative kind of system. Um, And so the UK has a case study based system. um, And yet we're all trying to game that system as well. Um, uh, And so I think we can only do the best that we can in terms of of measuring this stuff. Um, uh, I think that uh, when you measure it, it means that you can then start to say, well, these are some people who are doing some incredible things unambiguously, and we are going to reward that in some way. And you can start to create... Uh, messages that that then send uh, the message to the community that actually it's not just about your grant income and your publications, actually the societal benefit that we do in the world is important. And we don't just say that in our straplines to our universities. We actually put our money where our mouth is. So I think there is that really important message that can come uh, and if you can evaluate it, perhaps not metricize it, but you can evaluate it in a more uh, sophisticated way, then that gives you that potential. Uh, the problem of of uh, incentivizing it is what I'm seeing in in the UK, where we are now doing that, and unlike in U- in the Australian system, there there are some very big sums of money attached to winning on impact. Um, there is now uh, an additional layer of conflict of interest where now actually uh, I may, may be engaging with you as uh, a policymaker uh, without telling you that actually if you take my advice, um, I'm gonna be able to apply for a promotion off the back of this. Uh, my research group is gonna get a bunch of money. Um, uh, my university is gonna climb the lead tables. I'm gonna be able to recruit better staff, retain them more effectively. And actually uh, for some people, this then becomes an extrinsic incentive which leads them to use and abuse people for their own career ends. And that is when things start going wrong. And that's why I start all of my trainings, why through all of my books, everything I do is infuse this idea that this is about values and that you need to fundamentally understand why you, doing, why you do what you do and why, if you are engaging in impact, you are engaging with impact. And if actually the answer is for self-esteem, for ego, for fame and fortune, for, for all these other things, then okay, let's be honest, that's what it's about. But watch out for those negative negative and unintended consequences.
2: Your comments there, Mark, reminded me of um, an extraordinarily orange narcissist in the United States. And I was thinking about the use of social media for research impact. And We're in quite an intimate little booth here, so I will admit to you that I am on Twitter. (laughs) Um, But many other researchers are now, too. And I'm wondering, to what extent is this an effective tool for the communication of research to those other audiences? And what cautions would you have for researchers who are looking to social media as a means to boost their impact? Yeah, so I think most
0: people in this place are fairly evangelical about this. You should all have a Twitter account. You should all be all over social media because it is our responsibility that we communicate our our research to the broadest possible audience. Uh, And I think it it is really important that we temper that enthusiasm with some some really cautionary words here because uh, for for many of the researchers I I work with, this is a, a hugely problematic space. Um, we know on Twitter in particular that uh, if you are female, you're much more likely to be exposed to online abuse. From my work with researchers, uh, I would say that as big a risk factor is how controversial your research subject is, uh, and whether you're male or female. If you work on a controversial issue, then it can be remarkable the, the level of uh, of abuse that you can find on on these on these platforms. Uh, and so. You need to go in with your eyes wide open uh, and grow that thick skin if you believe it is worth it and you want to do it and you need to be on that that platform. Uh, But equally, if actually you don't believe that you do have that thicker skin or you don't want to have to grow a thicker skin, you don't have to do this. This is an optional thing. Um, I I think that probably the two biggest risk factors for me are time and reputation. Um, So, uh, our reputation is everything, you you bust your reputation and, and that's it, your credibility is gone, it's very hard to get that back. And if you misplaced words on social media can be taken out of proportion, out of context, uh, you can lose lose your job. And so for me, uh, the slightest whiff of, of uncertainty and I'm pressing delete, I'm saving, I'm taking advice, I've taken legal advice on tweets before I t- tweeted before. Uh, because my job is not worth a tweet or any other social media post. I met one uh, academic who told me, you know what, the reason I'm not on social media is I don't trust what I would write after two glasses of red wine on a Friday night. And I thought, hey, that's a great, great justification for this. You know, know yourself, know your limits, uh, and and draw those lines. The the time issue is more problematic. Most of us don't have time to get through our emails. Why add a whole load of additional streams of information to try and digest? Uh, and what I suggest to people is to, to, to try and experiment. So if you were to Try Twitter, for example, uh, and uh, replace your current news sources with the same news sources but on, on Twitter. Uh, what you can now do is you can, what I like to do at least, is uh, to look at both sides of the debates on the issues that I research. Uh, and I actually now get an even more representative picture of the view because I get those very extreme voices that are never going to get onto the mainstream news and I hear both sides of the debate. And uh, what I can do now is I can ingest that much more efficiently and choose what I engage with. I get a, a broader range of news. Uh, and what I found is when I compared the amount of time I spent on an average weekday just looking at TV, radio, newspapers, online, whatever, uh, compared to how much time I spend now on the news, I saved myself on an average 50 minutes per day, 50, and that's a lot of time. So I'm actually doing all of my outreach for multiple projects, engaging with people for impact, and getting all of my news, and creating 50 minutes of extra time per day. Uh, now for me, partly because some of this was while I was traveling in the car, I listening to the radio, um, I, I've used that time to get better work-life balance. So for me, I got myself a Kindle, I got myself an audiobook subscription, uh, and I'm using that to do creative reading, which I realized, you know what, I stopped doing this after I had kids, I'd like to do this again. So it is possible to to engage with these things and and mitigate those risks and when you do the power of this uh, is just very simple human psychology that you could stumble across my research in a Google search and 50-50 you might click on mine versus some misinformation that is actually purposefully seeking to take you down a route which is not evidence-based which is for some kind of uh, interest. Compared to on social media, I am now a warm, trusted contact and the likelihood of you engaging with me, listening to me, learning from me, acting on what I say are now much more. Uh, And so the potential for research impact and the reach that you can get into communities that would otherwise be really hard and the efficiency with which you can do that is something that is worth considering.
1: I think that's such a useful kind of overview of the pros and cons of something like Twitter. And often as researchers we feel torn between, you know, engaging really proactively in Twitter and then at the other extreme focusing on the very high level publications that take a very long time are important because we know they're evidence-based and they're peer-reviewed but you know somewhere between 5 and 15 people might read them. What lies in between? You know, what's what's your advice for those who maybe heed the warning about what you might be exposed to if you go onto Twitter and prefer not to do that, and th- but those who want to go beyond just the traditional academic publications? What tools, what avenues are there to communicate our research in between what I would see as maybe those two extremes?
0: Uh, so you can just decide, I want to make an impact. Great. Um, for me, this is about research impact. Uh, and that means research comes first. Uh, and so this is not just my opinion, it's not just what I feel about this, uh, this is that I've done some research on this or I've read some research on this, uh, I synthesized these various different perspectives um, and now here is an evidence-based view uh, and that's what I'm putting into into Twitter or, or any other kind of engagement strategy. So it's important to, to, to make sure that that is the order in which we do it. This is about excellent research that then has an impact, not flawed research or no research. And so for me, the priorities thing has to be that I do keep my research going. I'm publishing those papers. But when I publish those papers, uh, for me now... The impact factor of the journal, um, launching this at some major conference, is now a fairly outmoded way of thinking about how I get that to have reach. Uh, And whether that's the academic community who I want to read and cite my paper or the broader community, uh, the first step clearly is that I'm going to publish in a respectable journal uh, that is going to be open access. But now, rather than just doing that and making my research accessible, this is about making it understandable to everyone who might want to read this from different disciplines and from beyond the academy. So I will write a blog about it, I will create an infographic about it, I will then tweet that infographic, Uh, I'll have a social media strategy behind that so that uh, if I don't have a big enough following myself, I'm finding those influencers. I'm pitching to them, I'm getting them to amplify that signal ideally, then uh, there's a reward to those who click on those links that actually they go to my blog and they discover that there's a little video. Um, and actually, it's embedded within a much broader website that's got a whole of other resources. And now, of course, I'm sharing that and I'm tweeting the rest of the site and I'm writing my own blog about all the cool stuff I learned when I visited that site. And, and so for me, this is about making it accessible, um, but, but really exceeding expectations in terms of how understandable and how usable this stuff is. Uh, I think a lot of us think that that's quite horrible. Well, how do I make an infographic? Uh, it's actually quite surprising how easy this is. So I recently blogged about this uh, on my uh, website, uh, fasttrackimpact.com, um, how to turn your next paper into an infographic. And there are websites that can help you do this. But my experience is that you need a bit of design thinking before you put some stuff into one of these websites. Um, And it's surprising how professional, how quick, how easy it is that you can come up with something that can communicate your message really loud and clear and wide.
1: Mark, we've talked a lot about research impact, which is clearly your area of expertise. But I'm interested to hear what you have to say about teaching as part of the impact that universities might create? Where do you see teaching fitting within this story of impact Um, and indeed of research impact?
0: I think there's lots of different ways you can think about this and I think most generically across the board this is uh, about uh, inspiring change. For me teaching is not about disseminating, it's not about treating people as sponges and just providing all of that information. Uh, We can get that stuff. My role as a teacher uh, is to inspire and is to unpack those complicated, challenging concepts and create a safe space in which we we can discuss and learn and do that higher level thinking. And I think when you inspire people to learn based on the latest research, then who knows where that will go. More specifically for people in applied disciplines, um, actually you can think about this in a much more specific kind of designed way uh, where actually now my teaching is an intervention. I'm teaching people who are, I don't know, nurses, um, public servants, uh, people who are going to go out into a particular policy or practice domain and potentially make the world a better place. Uh, How can I think about my research and turn that not just into a lecture, but into an intervention that I can train people in that I can explain exactly how you would use this in the workplace uh, and how that would then transform that workplace and deliver good? Uh, And then can I actually create some kind of incentive for those students to stay in touch with me? So some kind of email list or something that keeps people up to date with the latest research in terms of their professional practice. And can I go back a year or two later and ask a bunch of questions, including some questions linked to those specific interventions? Are you using this stuff? If so, is it helping? If not, why not? How can I then change that intervention? How can I then help you? And actually now you begin to support those people in the workplace and get evidence for the fact that actually this is stuff that through your teaching is actually making the world a better place. And I think for many of us, the, the role of evaluating the impact that we have, um, although You might see it as a bit of a a pain um, and a a hoop that you have to jump through can be hugely motivational because you start to discover there is all this evidence that actually the stuff you're doing is making a difference. And and that for me is, is massive.
2: Mark, you've talked to us so much today about values and trust and relationships and now motivation. Can you leave us with a bit of inspiration this afternoon? Is there a project or an experience that you've had in your own work on research impact where you got to have that moment where someone came up to you and said, you know, your research did this for us. What was that?
0: I think what I would would do is I, I would tell you a story about some, some research that, uh, that started a long time ago. Uh, during my PhD, I, I was preparing a lecture and an idea occurred to me. Now, I, I could make this so-called eureka moment sound uh, really romantic, but uh, the reality was that I was on the way to the toilet at the time. I was holding the door open, uh, and the, the smell was kind of wafting along the corridor. Uh, and as I looked at, at this, this wall, um, this, this idea occurred to me. Uh, and it was a very simple idea, and I, I suspect that many other people in the world at that same point probably had the same idea. Um, but being an academic, I got to write it down. And uh, as a result of writing that idea down, I got a phone call from someone in charity who said, cool idea, could we use that? And I had to confess, you know what, it was just an idea and I've got no idea how you'd actually do this in reality, but would you consider working with me to try and turn this into reality? And together we then co-designed a project. Uh, That charity opened doors for me to work with stakeholders across this very conflicted uh, issue space. And, and together, we then produced some research that evidenced this idea and explained exactly how you could, in theory, put this idea into practice. We went on a bunch of dead ends. We monitored what we were doing as we were going so we could see that actually some of the stuff wasn't working. So we could look on purpose for a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. It took a lot of plans uh, until eventually we made, uh, we made those breakthroughs. Uh, and for me, it was that moment. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a conference policy practice type conference uh, and this was the launch of this new policy mechanism. Uh, And again, I can make it sound really impressive, but the reality was that we were actually literally given a a box to stand on uh, and a microphone um, in a drinks reception. And most people talked over the announcement. But hey, uh, we we launched this policy mechanism. And since then, there's been interest in this around the world. um, And I'm now research lead for the charity uh, that I've worked with on this. And we're now working with the United Nations uh, on a global initiative to look at how you can use a combination of public and private investment to protect nature.
1: Mark, I think we're all going to be racing off to look at that idea and what it was. So for those of us and for those of our listeners who want to have a look at what that inspirational idea was, where do they look? What What was the research project called? Or where can we find out a bit more information to be inspired?
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, I've got a paper in the journal Global Environmental Change um, 2015, I believe, Uh, 16 maybe uh, on my website Um, my most recent paper in that journal um, which describes this is called A Place-Based Approach to Payments for Ecosystem Services and the idea is uh, essentially that uh, if you can understand the value of nature for all of the people who actually benefit from this and monetize that um, then there are actually some very good reasons why companies will invest partly for self-interest in terms of mitigating risks from things like climate change but also also for social good that means that actually we begin to get the level of finance necessary to tackle the scale of environmental challenges that we face today.
1: So there you go. That's where we're all going after this podcast, to have a look at that work. But I think that's great because it gives us some really practical ideas of how this actually plays out in in the real world. Mark, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you and it has been inspirational. And I will now always think of the toilet moment rather than the eureka moment. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks, Mark. That was Professor Mark Reed, And thanks to Mark for his time and his insights and what insights they were. I think that was just fascinating to hear what he had to say. And Sarah, you've been following Mark for a long time. You've been reading lots of his work. What did you think? Oh, well, it's always
2: interesting when you get in the room with the person who's writing that you've read, because particularly when you read Mark's work, he is so successful and his notions about research impact are so forward-thinking, you kind of wonder, "Mm, do I love-hate this person? They're so great. And what I really enjoyed about Mark's discussion was his focus on value. He really took research back to curiosity, to the interests that we have to make a difference in the world. I liked his focus on relationships and trust and the notion that researchers can't just be thrown together by university structures in some kind of interdisciplinary soup. We actually need to have relationships with one another. And we need the time and opportunity to build relationships with industry and with government partners if we want them to have ownership of research and be able to really take that research and use it in the real world. So I left that conversation feeling super motivated, Sharon.
1: Yeah, I did too. I thought it was terrific. And I think Mark has that wonderful combination of vision and reality. You know, he could he could really clearly articulate what we can do when we think about impact in the way that he encourages us to. But he was pretty pragmatic about the challenges and particularly about the time that it takes. And of course, one of the challenges facing researchers in universities, like lots of professionals, is trying to be all things to all people and, and the time constraints. So I think some of the practical things that Mark had to say were really useful. One of the things that I really loved, though, was what he had to say about teaching. Because when we talk about research impact, we, we often forget about that part of our jobs, Um, that most of us are so passionate about, but that has such a great impact, and and that's teaching. So I really took those words away and was was really inspired by what he had to say.
2: I completely agree, and I think that teaching is often underrated in today's universities, but I love it so much I can't believe I get paid to do it. And so the notion that research impact can also occur in the classroom, and I thought what that conversation opened up for me was the two-way nature of research impact, because I know for myself that some of my greatest uh, and most innovative research ideas have come from the conversations that I've had with my students. And there's a lot of back and forth there. And so I think another thing that I took away from Mark and his focus on relationships is the the two-way nature of impact and how having those conversations and really being connected, not only to policymakers, to uh, intergovernmental agencies, or civil society, and, and corporates, but also to our students, is a way in which researchers can really open up opportunities uh, to identify areas where impact might be possible.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, and and I also like the way Mark started by asking that question of, why do you do this? Why do you research? And you could also ask, why do you teach? And as he pointed out, people have all kinds of reasons for that. But I think I'm with Mark in terms of just wanting to do something that's socially valuable in the world. And teaching's the same, you know, it gives us an opportunity, a really privileged opportunity, not so much to teach, but to engage with our students. And certainly here, here at Crawford, uh, we're, we're so privileged because our students bring so much to those conversations. So I think we've probably both taken away lots and lots of food for thought from Mark. So you've heard our thoughts, but what about our listeners? What did you think of that? What did you think of what Mark had to say? Were you as inspired as Sarah and I are? Let us know. We're really keen to hear your thoughts. Reach us on at Apps Policy Forum, Asia-Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just drop us a line by email, podcast at policyforum.net. Sarah, it was great having you here today to to talk to Mark. How did you find it, your first podcast?
2: First podcast with Crawford, but Sharon, this took me right back to my college days as a rock radio intern in North Carolina. 106 Rock, all rock, all the time. So really, for me, this has been extraordinary fun. Uh, And also, I would have to say, thinking about research impact, how does podcasting relate to creating impact? This is the researcher equivalent of a face melting guitar riff. It is awesome and memorable.
1: I thought I detected the tone of experience there, Sarah. (laughs) It's been great. Experience and debauchery. It's been great to have you here. We'll be back next week uh, with another Policy Forum pod. Until there, then from me, Sharon Bessel, bye for now.
2: And from me, Sarah Vice, listen up, write in, and be well.